Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Good morning, church. How are we? Ooh, some of you are awake, some of you are still sleeping. How are we? Great. I've got a few things I want to pass along to you. Um, first, uh, the reason why my voice is a little low, it's not because I have the Rona. It's because uh, I was uh, on a lake all day yesterday, and I have half of the lake in my sinuses, and a little bit of mold encounter, and so I sound more like Barry White than I'd like to. Um, another thing is, uh, with the New City Catechism, right, we have uh, wanted to equip you guys, especially you parents, as best as we can to lead your family in that. And so back where Ethan is, if you can look at where he is in the window, uh, we have the catechism itself and a family devotional uh, for a suggested donation, I think of $15 for the bundle, right? So we basically started our own bookstore. And uh, if you are interested in picking those up, they are there. I highly commend them to you, okay? So be sure to pick those up. Uh, Suggested donation is $15 for that. Uh, One more quick uh, thing. Um, we are blessed to have uh, several pastors uh, who are a part of our church family here, but this morning we are being visited by uh, pastors and family uh, all the way from Scranton, Pennsylvania. So that would be James and Jen Cohen. They're actually uh, in the district that I was in in my last church, and they are here with us this morning. So if you guys would give them a warm welcome. They have been on vacation, and they are here now with us. Yeah, they have five kids, by the way. Yeah, so they just made up a majority of our children's ministry. <laughs> Exodus 34 is where I want you in your Bibles. Right? Exodus 34, it's where we've been because we've been on this series called A Glimpse of Glory. We've been ascending this mountain, right, of seeing who God is because we are under the impression, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, that basically we become what we behold, right? And if we behold the glory of God, we are going to be transformed by that glory from one degree of glory to the next, as Paul promised us. So if we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 in that light, then we've got to see God's glory, and we've got to know what God's glory is. And so here's, here's the test. Can you remember the definition? What are we defining God's glory as? I'll start it for you. The beautiful Somebody nailed it in the back. I heard you. The be- Let's say this all together. The beautiful perfections of God's sovereign character. Just a heads up, I will be asking it again next week, okay? So today we're going to be diving into the glimpse of God's glory, particularly the beautiful perfections of his sovereign character. We're going to look at one facet of it that is probably as commonplace in our Christianese language as the word the is in the English language, right? It's the concept of God's grace, right? We've already been singing about it all morning. Um, Have you ever noticed that there's some attributes of the character of God that we're comfortable naming our kids after, and then there's some that we're not? Have you thought about that? Grace is one of them, right? I've met somebody who's named Mercy. That was beautiful. I met somebody who's named uh, Hesed. Hesed, you got you to gotta do your throat thing again. <laughs> Hesed, right? And that's the Hebrew word for faithful or steadfast love. 
But have you ever met somebody whose son was named Holy? No. That's sacrilegious, right? Have you ever met somebody who named their daughter Omniscience? Right? Hey, this is my two-year-old Omniscience. She knows everything, right? No, we, we, we don't. There's only some characteristics of God that we're okay naming our kids after, and grace is the most popular one, right? So I've got some stats for you. In 2018, the name Grace ranked 24th on the list for girls in the U.S., right? So that's a popular name, right? So everybody was naming their kid Grace, or at least their middle name is named Grace. How many of you have a middle name of Grace? Yep, see? Told you, right? Guys, so we uh, worship leaders have access to this database of like a ton, thousands and thousands of songs and hymns that we can sing legally before you guys. And in that database, it says that there are at least 4,578 worship songs and hymns that are centered on the theme of grace. That's after love, which love is, I think it was 13,000 songs. (laughs) Next was grace. 4,500 different songs in our repertoire of what we can sing in the Christian faith that are centered on the theme of grace, right? And so here's the thing. Here's the problem with that, though. Because we sing about it, because we talk about it, because we read about it, because we pray about it, because we study about it so often, our natural inclination in this kind of conversation where where we're hearing the word of God preached about his grace, our natural inclination is to want to just tune out and say, well, you know what? I already know about this. Like This is basically the whole tenet of our faith, so can't we just move on to something a bit more in-depth? We've got grace covered, right? As a church, we've got grace under wraps. We don't need to talk about it anymore. And so then what happens when we start thinking that way is we become indifferent to the theme of grace whenever we sing about it so that we sing amazing grace. It's not that amazing. (laughs) It's just words coming out of our mouth instead of awe filling out of our hearts, right? Guys, if there is anything in God that ought to make us marvel and wonder at who he is, it's going to start and end with his grace. It's going to start and end his grace. And not only that, but if there's anything that's going to redefine how you relate to God or continually refine how you relate to God, it's going to be his grace. It's going to redefine everything, in fact. And so what I want us to come into this conversation with is a humble heart where you and I can agree with one another that we all have multiple areas in our lives where we are not relating to God and to one another in grace. Would you be willing to admit that with me? Because I'm the same way. There's things that I do, words that I say, thoughts that I have that are not in the framework of grace. So my question is, can we start this conversation off admitting that and then going into this so that God could just spark awe in each of us? Will you agree with that with me? So let's read. I'm going to be reading from the ESV today. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed 
before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. This is God's word. He bless our study of it. Guys, this is, this is simply the premise for this morning. This is it. God is gracious. Can we say that together? One, two, three. God is gracious. God has defined his unchanging existence as being gracious. And like even trying to talk about God's grace is like trying to use one word to describe every detail of the ocean. Try that. The word grace isn't sufficient itself to exclaim all that God is in his graciousness. So good luck. Let's, let's just try. So we're asking two big questions this morning. What does it mean for God to be gracious? And what does he do because he is gracious? What does he mean and what does he do? What does it mean for God to be gracious? That's the first question that we're asking. Guys, the Hebrew word for gracious or grace comes from its root word, hanan. There's, again, we're gonna do some Hebrew every now and then. And the word hanan means to favor. So when you think of grace, think of to favor, right? And now when we're talking about this, it's, it's not as if we're owed favor, we're not owed any kind of benevolence from God. It's, it's like a disposition of kindness from God towards the object of his favor, and it doesn't matter what state the object of his favor is in or what that object has done or is doing. Right? It, doesn't, it has no regard for the object itself. It is gracious regardless. It favors regardless. And so from this, we get the idea that God favors things and he does so with no regard to their past, present, or future. He does so with no regard from their merit or from their deserving it, which is where we get the most concise definition of grace that I think works really well. It's one that I've hung on to for a while. Grace is unmerited favor. Can you say unmerited favor with me? One, two, three. Unmerited favor. Right? Unmerited favor. Undeserved. I can't earn his favor. Right? Now, the only reason we get this definition is because of how God shows us what grace is. Grace is not external to God and then forces God to be gracious. Grace is within God himself. That's how we can understand what grace is because he has defined himself as gracious, meaning, meaning he favors with no regard to merit, meaning his kindness doesn't depend on our performance, right? His love and his generosity require no action on our part. God is gracious to us, not in response to our deserving or our meriting it. He is of a favorable disposition towards us before we can even do anything. 
So I, I think we've got to go ahead and just kind of put something right on the table and just get all of us on the same page. Guys, God's currency isn't your works. What you do doesn't earn anything with God. Your goodness doesn't buy his favor. Your good works don't merit his blessing. Right? That's the understanding of grace, right? What God accepts in order to get his favor is not your own goodness, right? Because you can't exchange your performance with God. You can't say, hey, I've muscled up in these areas of my life, so therefore you've got to take this away from me because I've been good. I've been good, God. We can't go to God with that kind of currency. He won't accept it anymore. It's a different covenant now. It all depends on him. Especially if he's self-existent, right? Meaning, meaning we can't ultimately influence him to be gracious. He is gracious in and of himself because he's defined himself as that. And because he is gracious, because he favors us with no regard to our merit or our own goodness, then we move to our second question. Because he's gracious, what does he do? Right? So the first question, what does it mean for God to be gracious? It means he, he favors us without our meriting it. And then what does he do because he is gracious? That's the second part of our morning this morning. What does he do? In other words, what does his grace impel God to do in the created order of things? Well, if you can remember, two weeks ago we talked about mercy, right? And mercy had kind of two storylines throughout the whole narrative of Scripture, right? Uh, it, was, it was one that he confronts human guilt and he confronts human misery. So two main themes of mercy carried throughout the Bible. This week we've got also two main themes of, of grace that are carried throughout the Bible, right? So I'm going to go ahead and give those to you, and if you are taking notes, I suggest this is probably the most important thing to write down, right? Because God is gracious, he pardons and empowers his people. Can y'all read that with me? One, two, three. Because God is gracious, he pardons and empowers his people, right? So, so first, like God's grace is seen as a means of, of pardoning, he pardons the guilt of the guilty. So guys, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna rock off a ton of scripture to you right now. Or actually, like, summaries of a ton of scripture. So, like, let's just, let's just drink from the fire hydrant real quick. According to Ephesians 1, it was God's grace that planned salvation for sinners in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. That was his grace. In, in Romans 3, it is God's grace that provided salvation and the historical death of Christ. In other words, it was God's grace that sent his son to the cross, right? In Galatians 1, it says that it is, the, it is God's grace that enables us to appropriate salvation because it's his grace that calls us to salvation. Ephesians 2 said that we are saved by what? Grace alone. In Philippians 1, it, is says, it says that it's God's grace that gives us the faith in which we need to have under the condition to receive that salvation. 
It says that God pardons the guilty because of his grace. He grants forgiveness in Christ because of his grace. Guys, check out, check out. This is probably, uh, I think, the one that I want most uh, imprinted on our hearts and minds. It's Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. It says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his what? Grace. Grace. Because he is abundantly rich in grace, which he what? Lavished upon us. He waterfalled it on our heads. Guys, this is why mercy and grace are so intertwined throughout the whole narrative of Scripture, right? If God's mercy impels him to confront human guilt, it's his grace that pardons it. So mercy and grace are the first things that we see about the nature of our God because they're so intertwined. So I, I just, I think we need to pause here for a second. Like, can you feel the weight of this? Is this, is this in the context of you seeing your own sin? Of you grasping the idea, like, when we just saying how great the chasm that stood between you and me, God. Is that in the framework that you're thinking about this? All your sin has been pardoned. In Christ, for those of you who believe in Jesus, every single transgression of the law that you and I have committed, past, present, and future, have been pardoned forever, every one of them. Does that not deserve the greatest amen? amen. For those of you who are not in Christ, who don't believe in Jesus, but who are weighed down by the weight of your own sin. Every transgression, past, present, and future, can be pardoned in Jesus alone. Do you know what the concept of pardon means in the Hebrew? To pardon means to lift and to carry away. You know the verse, as far as the east is from the West, so far has he lifted up and carried away our transgressions from us. That is pardon. They can't be connected to you anymore. They aren't tied to you anymore. They are cast into the sea and are no more. That is pardon. In Jesus, God's grace lifts the burden of our sin from us carries it, and he carries it all the way to the cross. He became sin for us. That's the gospel. God's grace pardons people. This is the first big narrative of grace in the Bible. And I think this is the best part. that though my sin 
Every single one of them. Every transgression. Every, every burst of rage. Every lustful thought. Has been carried so far away. That it needs no longer weigh on us anymore. That is pardon, and it's in His grace. That's the first part of this. Here's the second part God empowers. Can we say that together? One, two, three. God empowers. He empowers you. He empowers me. I am not up here because I have strengthened of myself or any kind of wit. Guys, I'm pretty dumb and I do a lot of dumb things. It is his power alone that does anything good among us because he's empowering us. Those who have totally thrown themselves upon the grace of God alone don't just stand on his grace, they also receive his grace. They are given his grace, and in scripture, the other part of the narrative is that it's seen as this supernatural energy within his people, this supernatural power that does incredible things, right? So Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 3 state that it's like the grace of God that calls us and equips us for service in the Christian life. It's his grace that does that. And so very much like Luke in Acts, Paul speaks of the grace of God as a power, right? It's almost like a person, right? It says, Paul talks about the grace of God being like something that was with him. It's something that produced labor out of him. It's like it produced humility and godliness and sustained him in like the worst times of his life. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10 I mean, you guys know the Apostle Paul's story. He was the persecutor turned missionary. This is what he says. He says, it's by the grace of God I am that I, what I am. It's by God's grace alone that I am what I am. And in view, he's talking about, he's a missionary to the Gentile nations. He is serving God on the frontiers of the Christian faith. And it's by God's grace alone that he is what he is. And he gets to do what he's doing. In fact, 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, they say that it's God's grace that grants us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. Because that's one of my favorite promises. Can you you understand that? It's God's grace that says, hey, right now, you, you, every single one of us who are in Christ, we have all that we need to be godly. Godly. We're not lacking anything right now. It's not like, hey, I've got to do this and then got to add this into it in order to be godly. No, God says, hey, my grace has given you everything that you need right now to be a godly human being, to demonstrate my character in the world. It's his grace that does that because he's gracious. You have supernatural power from on high to be godly, like God in all your thoughts, in what you love, in what you do. So it can be said, basically, 
that everything in the believer's life, from the first time God wooed you to the cross to the very last breath that's in service to God for his glory is all because of God's grace alone. Because he is gracious. Because God alone is gracious. Guys, he loves to show grace in pardoning the guilty and then those who have been pardoned, empowering them for his purposes. He loves to do that. That is a sign of his grace. Guys, lavish grace is God's goodness that comes looking for you when you want nothing to do with him. Grace is a farmer paying a full day's wages to a crew of deadbeat day laborers with only a single hour punched on their time cards. It's, it's, grace is a, a man marrying an abandoned woman and then refusing to forsake his covenant with her when she turns out to be a whore. It's grace that is the insanity of a shepherd who puts the 99 sheep at risk to go rescue the single lamb that has run off and is just too stupid to stay with the pack, right? It's his grace. It's the love of a father who hands over his finest rings and robes to a young man who has squandered his inheritance on drunken binges with his fair-weathered friends. It's God's grace that is a one-way love that calls you into the kingdom, not because you've been good, but because God has chosen you and made you his own. And right now, he is chasing you to the ends of the earth to keep you as his child. And nothing in heaven or hell can stop him. And you know what qualifies us to be the beneficiaries of such grace, to be the beneficiaries of him pardoning our guilt and him empowering us to fulfill his purposes here on earth. You know what qualifies us for that? Faith alone. Faith alone. Right, so Romans 11 says that if we had worked for the grace, then grace no longer is grace, right? Grace inherently means unmerited favor, right? So I mean, Paul talks about in Romans 4, 16. Let's see if we can get this up. That is why being an heir of the promise, aka grace, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on what? Grace. It depends on faith alone. You can't earn God's grace. Again, it's inherent to the definition. You just believe and receive. That's basically the Christian life, isn't it? Believe and receive. So I have to ask you, can you see how glorious this is? Can you truly see how glorious it is? Can you see the beauty of all of this? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fullest and perfect expression of God's grace. You will not find grace anywhere else. You just won't find it. 
This kind of quality ultimately isn't perfectly shared by anyone else. Guys, it's God's grace is why over 38,000 people around the world today will give their life to Jesus alone. Right? It's God's grace is why 23,000 people in Iran, which is one of the un- most unreached places in the world today in the 1040 window, it's why over 23,000 people turned to the grace of God in Christ Jesus in one year last year. Guys, it's changing lives. It's God's grace that is reshaping cultures and redefining societies around the world. It's because being gracious, sorry, I'll get control of this soon. Being gracious is something that's only unique to Yahweh, to the God of this book. You won't find it anywhere else. You won't find a God in the world today apart from Yahweh, apart from the Trinity that we worship according to the scripture. You won't find a God who is gracious. In in Islam, you will not find a God who is gracious. In, In animism, In spirituality in India, you will not find a God who is gracious. In Hinduism, you will not find a single God who is gracious. They all operate on another framework, in another system. Only in Yahweh, only in this book, only in our faith will we ever find a God who says, I delight to be gracious. So you know what that means. No matter what age you are, even if it's your last breath, you can, by faith, receive God's grace. On your deathbed, you can receive the grace of God by faith alone in Jesus and escape the wrath. Guys, The Bible says that God's arms aren't too short to save. There's more grace in God than there is sin in you. And where your sin runs rampant, his grace always overabounds. So what I want to do real quick is I want to show you how this fleshes out into our daily lives. Right? Because I believe if we really understand God's grace and we desire to be godly, it's going to impact how we relate to God and then how we relate to everyone else. And what I want to do is demonstrate this by using something that Tim Keller did once in one of his messages. So all of us, no matter our race, no matter our religion, no matter our history or our values or our culture, relate to people in either one of two systems— Every single one of us relate to a deity or our God or to one another in one of two systems. The first system is called a moral performance system. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Moral performance system. So if if this narrative defines who you are, then you think, okay, I'm I'm a good person because I feel significant, because I'm, I'm, I'm achieving something Or I'm morally good, right? I'm morally good because of what I do. So therefore, I'm significant. Therefore, I mean something. So therefore, like the liberal activist says, I'm a good person because I'm working for the poor. I'm working for human rights. And I'm I'm open-minded, right? 
Or the traditional religious person says, I'm a good person because I go to church and read my Bible. Or I go to the synagogue and read the Torah. Or I go to the mosque and read the Quran. And I'm working really hard to be good and to serve God. Or if you're like a secular atheist who just is a hardworking, decent person, and you're just going after the pleasures of the world, right? Like, there's all sorts of people. But every relationship in your life in this kind of system will be defined by what others do or don't do or what others have or haven't done. In this system, it's all about what you've done or are doing or haven't done or aren't doing. So the liberal activist looks down on the bigot. The traditional religious person looks down on those who don't believe in their religion. Or the, the secular, hardworking atheist just looks down on the lazy or the spiritual. And guys, if I can, I don't often delve into politics and I'm not trying to right now, but what I see in our society today with this, this cancel culture, right? This cancel, cancel culture society fits right into this, right? It fits into this moral performance system where anyone who has made like helpful or significant advancement for human flourishing, though they've done something morally wrong, whether it's egregious or not, they just need to be totally removed from history or from any potential influence on our society, right? Because they've done something wrong. And I realize that a lot of that has to do with things that are really egregious, right? But is that how it works? I mean, because if that's the case, then every single book in this Bible would have to be thrown out and canceled because it was authored by multiple men who were murderers, liars, cheats, thieves, adulterers. I can keep going. Guys, the rest of the world operates in that kind of system. And because we're surrounded by it, because it's almost like the air that we're breathing, we can easily be influenced by this as well, can we not? All right, so for example, it can influence how we relate to God. We kind of try to manipulate him, right? Hey, I've done this good thing, right? Why are you letting me endure this trial? Hey, I served this person. Why am I not getting this that I asked for on my Christmas list? Right? If that's your relationship with God, then you're operating in this. You're operating in a moral performance system, in a structure of how you relate to God. Or you, you, you've seen it within the church, right? So it's not just in how we relate to God, it's how we relate to one another, right? We, 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 this may be, sound weird. Some of us have this opinion that there's like these super spiritual elite. They're kind of like the SEAL Team 6 of the church, Right? They've got these, these, these titles that, that are just crazy powerful, and, and they seem to have special access to God. So, so I don't pray for anything. I'm just going to go to this pastor or this person who serves in this role at my church and let them pray for everything because they've got special access to God. I don't have access like them. Guys, you are operating in that if that's how you think about us, me. Right? We all have equal access to the grace of God at the foot of the cross. Amen. Amen. And guys, the further you slide into this, 
the more damage you will do to every relationship you have, both with your Father in heaven and those around you, even your spouses, even your children. If you operate like this in your own home, then they won't even be able to have a concept of God's grace when they actually encounter it. When you have a marriage that's defined by this, you say, well, I'm not gonna do anything for my wife until they do this for me. I won't scratch your back until you scratch mine. Literally, I've had that conversation with my wife once. <laughs> she asked, can you scratch my back? He's like, well, yeah, if you scratch mine after. Literally, because we like back scratches. She likes massages. She gets cramps in her back and stuff. So. That's a moral performance system, is it not? Is there not any time where we just want to be gracious and say, hey, I'd love to do that because I love you? Or what about our kids? Guys, I, I could keep going. We don't have time for this, right? The further you slide into this, the more damage you will do to all of your relationships. And the further you will be from God's heart. Because God's heart isn't in this system, it's in the grace system. Can you say this with me? One, two, three. The grace system. This is how God relates to his people. This is how he wants his people to relate to him and to one another. So uh, you know those people, I mean, you all have them probably, that they, you can never just really do enough. Like they, they, you, anything that you do just isn't enough. It's not good enough. They're like, well, I would have done it this way and it would have been better. Right? Ah, please. Guys, that is not God. He's not asking you to measure up to his standards, at least anymore, not in this new covenant. Right? He's asking, not asking you to be good enough. God doesn't constantly remind you that you aren't good enough, that you haven't met his expectations. Instead, no, he is looking at everything that his son has done and accomplished on the cross. He sees Christ's perfection as your perfection. In him, you are his righteousness, right? And then he gives us his spirit to show us where we're wandering off like that sheep. And then he shows us what his will is because of his grace. Where your moral failures abound, his grace abounds all the more. So this is just how outrageous and radical God's grace is. And this is exactly how he wants us to be. He wants us to relate to him in grace, and he wants us to relate to one another in grace. Right? So people in this system, actually, let me just go ahead and say this. Do you know how people, uh, actually, let me rephrase that. How can you tell when someone who's a follower of Jesus has truly understood grace? How can you tell? It's not just simply by the way they relate to God and the way they relate to one another or how they show it, right? You can tell by the fact that they're always praying because prayer is the aroma of grace. When you truly understand grace, you realize, hey, I'm not powerful enough to do anything, right? God, it's your grace that empowers me to do something, so I need you, God, to help me with this. I'm on the way here, and I'm praying, God, I, 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 can, I can stand up there and say some stuff, but if it's going to be preaching, and if it's going to be preaching your word, it's got to be your grace and your spirit that empower me to do so. So would you do that now? When someone humbly prays, all the time, there you'll find who, someone who understands grace and is operating in grace. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. 
For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.